Our Father, we thank you that you have nurtured us in the wilderness. We thank you, Lord, that you have protected us from our enemies, indeed from Satan and his demonic forces. We thank you, Lord, that you preserve us, Lord, from the sin which still remains within us. We thank you, Lord, for the grace to, to give us faith to cling to Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you, O Lord, for that, that water which flows from the rock, that refreshment which can always be ours as we turn to you, O Lord, with faith. We thank you, Lord, that you ever desire to minister to your people the blessings that the Lord Jesus Christ has earned through his life and his death. O Lord, we pray that you would minister to us now again. Help us, O Lord, to hear the voice of the shepherd, even through his representatives. O Lord, we pray that you would help us remember that these are not the words of men, but they are the very words of the living God, with whom we each have to do. O Lord, help us to examine ourselves again in light of your words to us, your commands, your goals. We ask these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 22. What are the goals, the values, the actions which Jesus Christ has set down for his church to accomplish? Very often, Jesus Christ sets up the target that we are to aim at, the goal, not just by telling us what we are supposed to do, not just by saying, like we saw last night through Peter, love one another deeply from the heart. Jesus sets up the goal not only by his words, but also by his own example. Here in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 and following, <clears throat> we find Jesus Christ reclining at table with his disciples in the upper room. He is celebrating with them the Last Supper. He's just finished describing to his disciples the way in which his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for the forgiveness of their sins. And at the end, of his words to them, he adds the very challenging and sobering words. The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Now the scriptures tell us that Jesus' disciples began discussing amongst each other which of them might be the betrayer. Unfortunately, the tendency was not toward, is it I? Rather, the tendency was toward, is it you? 
And it was not long before they lapsed into an argument of how it obviously couldn't be me because I'm greater in the kingdom than you are. Now, those of you who know the Gospels know that Jesus had faced this kind of uh, tactless, insensitive self-righteousness with his disciples before. It seems that every time Jesus said something really profound to his disciples, that that's when they started arguing about which of them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Every time he told them what great things he was going to do for them, they started rousing up in pride. And yet even though they've done this so many times before, Jesus reacts once again with a patient statement of what his standards were for them, even as he was preparing to leave them to die and then to be resurrected and ascend into heaven. These are the standards that Jesus sets down for his disciples. Verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Do you want to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God, says Jesus? Then you must be a servant. The successful church, God's church, is a servant church. Now, right away, Jesus highlights, excuse me, I should say, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus highlights the way in which this is such an unnatural goal for his church, something that, again, goes against the grain of the world's standards. Jesus discusses the normal order of things from the world's perspective back in chapter 17, verses 7 and 8 of Luke, when he said this, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. You see, in the world, it is the one who is waited on by others who is the great one, who is the important one. Who is the greater, says Jesus in chapter 22? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Now, who is it that is at the table, at the banquet table of Jesus Christ? Who is it that is fed bread from heaven and water from the rock? Who is it that is ministered to with spiritual food and drink? 
it is Christian, undeserving Christians such as us. And by giving us that privilege, Jesus is calling us great. He is giving us places of honor at his table by his grace. But the details of it all are even more amazing than that. That's amazing itself. Because Jesus is not saying to us, Come, you bedraggled, woe-be-gone, poor, unfortunate sinners. Come into my estate and have supper with me. I'm feeling very benevolent today. And I'd like to mingle with the, uh, the little people. I love you enough to have you unwashed orphans come in and share a meal with me on my father's estate. Jesus isn't saying that at all. Jesus is saying, come to my table, not just to have the honor of sharing a place by my side, that's an honor enough, but come to my table to allow me, the one and only Son of God, to wait on you, to serve you. Verse 27, I am among you as one who serves. And of course, we know that Jesus practically demonstrated his servant attitude in John chapter 13, when he took the slave's place and he washed his disciples' feet. And then, of course, Jesus gave his most supreme demonstration of servanthood with the service to us that he performed at the cross. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Obeying his Father's will by living to serve other people, sacrificing his own privileges and desires for the well-being of other people. Boy, it's great to be served by Jesus, isn't it? He's praying for me. You know? He's given me his Holy Spirit. He's, he's living up there to shower me with spiritual blessings. He's just filling me with the fullness of God. He's giving me all kinds of supernatural resources. What's that, Jesus? You say that uh, you have one more part to the message? He who is served by me must then also serve me. The shepherd, as Dennis was saying, is not only there to tend, but to lead. John chapter 12, verse 24. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. But the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one 
preserves me. What Jesus is saying is that if we are to be a successful church, we must follow Jesus Christ in the way of service. The church has a servant calling. We are called to serve God, we are called to serve others in the church, and we are called to serve the world. Spurgeon uh, emphasizes that this word servant speaks about the under rower on the Roman galleys. You see, they had various levels of slaves who were chained to their oars and uh, they were rowing along because they didn't have outboard motors and that's how they made things go. You see the guy pounded on the drum and that told you how fast to pull on the oars. But there were different levels of slaves. And the worst level of all was the one at the lowest level, the one down below. You didn't have the ocean breezes. All you had was the stuffy, hot air in which to do your work and to be exhausted. And Jesus Christ is telling us that as his servants, we must be undergoers. We must be willing to take the lowest place in serving him and others. Who are, who are the most socially rejected in our community? We must take the lowest place by serving them, whether it be a particular minority group, whether it be a refugees whom the world may look down on as occupying a very lowly station in life, we must go serve them. Who are engaging in the most uh, destructive sins in our community? Perhaps it is the prisoner, the murderer, the prostitute, the politician. What is it that we must do? We must serve them those who are the great and most obvious sinners who are doing the most destruction in our midst? Are there members of the church who are less liked than the others, who are perhaps more neglected than the others, perhaps someone who doesn't have a particularly likable personality? Then we must take the lowest place and go and serve them. David Brainerd the great missionary to the Red Indians, was seen one day lying in his hut teaching a young Indian child to say his ABC. Somebody said, what? Is this David Brainerd teaching a child their letters? Yes, Brainerd said. I have prayed God that as long as I live, I might be useful. And now I am too weak to preach. I am too feeble to do anything else but just teach this little child the alphabet, and I shall keep on doing something for my master till I die. The church of Jesus Christ must be a servant church. If we are not giving of ourselves to others, then we will not be blessed with success, for it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now I think that the church in recent years has perhaps become more sensitive to its role as a servant, particularly to its missionary calling. We are sent to serve, 
and we see, for example, diaconal ministries in our churches that are growing in terms of the physical and spiritual needs that we are helping to alleviate. In some of our churches, we are beginning to realize that you don't have to wait until you are 20 years old and perhaps a community member until uh, you can be actually used in the work of the Lord. We are actually seeing that our young people, our teenagers, should be servants as well. Churches are establishing small fellowship groups so that church members can serve one another in uh, bearing each other's burdens in love. Perhaps because of certain heresies, but nonetheless, we have rediscovered the fact that every Christian has a spiritual gift. We have all been given the manifestation of the Spirit, says the Scriptures, for the common good. And we've all been challenged, perhaps again more recently, with our responsibility to reach out is with evangelistic zeal to law, we have come to see again that we are all Christ's witnesses. We need to be servants to those around us. But wait a minute. What about my kids? What about my covenant kids here? They got all kinds of problems. We need a youth worker. We've got too many problems here in the church ourselves. We haven't grown enough ourselves to be worried about helping anybody else. We need to get our own house in order before we start worrying about adding any new people to the house. We don't need service. We need nurture. Service. Nurture. Evangelism. Member visitation. Evangelism. Catechism. Increase the church, preserve the church. And the proponents line up on both sides. They really do. Larry Richards is one of the uh, inner consolidation men. He's a leading spokesman in the Christian education field. And he said in a recent quote, It's important that all our processes be designed to build maturity to build maturity, to help the believers in the church to grow. On the other hand, Jack Miller, an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor, has come down very strongly on the other side, on the side of outreach and service as the number one purpose in the church, in his book, uh, Evangelism and Your Church. Jack Miller has said this, The nature of Christ's office is well known. To advance the kingdom of God, to restore lost souls to God, to spread the gospel, and in short, to bring salvation to the world. The importance of these things made him forget meat and drink when he was tired and hungry. From this we received no common comfort. It tells us that Christ was so anxious for men's salvation that the height of pleasure for him was to attend to it. For we cannot doubt that he has the same attitude towards us today. I do not wish to dismiss the church's responsibility to guard her sheep from wolves teaching false doctrine. My problem lies solely with the assumption that such concerns must have first place in the normal ministry of the church. 
I am persuaded that this protectiveness overturns God's standard order for the church and its ministry. God's first priority for his church is to proclaim the gospel to the lost, bringing them to salvation. This is followed by a cultivation of the life and unity which that gospel produces among the people of the Lord Jesus, and finally in that context, as a living testimony to the power of the word, the church defends herself against error. Evangelism, says Miller, is God's first priority for his word and his church. Earlier this year, when Jack was at Westminster West, he urged upon us that the church needs to see all of its ministry, its worship, its fellowship, its nurture, the church needs to see its entire life in the light and the context of the Great Commission. That is the great umbrella that everything else falls under. Now, at least one pastor I read has insisted that since Jesus Christ in the Great Commission mentioned the word go first and only baptizing second and only teaching third, that this shows the priority, again, for Christ's church must be evangelism. The highest, the highest and best work a Christian can do, says the pastor of the Redeemer Lutheran Church in Redwood City, California, the highest and best work a Christian can do is to make disciples. And I think that uh, Kenneth Van White from Garden Grove Community Church Minister of Christian Education there, I think that he draws the line most clearly when he says this. And I'm obviously putting all of this information before you so you can see what I'm about to say. The need of the church is to devise an educational program geared to equip believers to invade the world of unbelief and bear witness to the truth of the Christian faith. In other words, Christian education needs to be task-oriented, and the task is the mission that Christ has given to his church. The primary purpose now of education is nurture. Equipping believers for the mission of the church is pushed to the background. People are urged to participate in education because it will nurture them. The church is thought of as a growth center where believers are brought to spiritual maturity. Involvement in the mission and ministry of the church is a byproduct of nurture. The assumption is that involvement in mission will come as a consequence of nurture. My experience in the church over the past years indicates that this assumption is invalid. Such education has not motivated people to involvement in the church's mission. In my judgment, nurture-oriented education commits the serious error of making an end out of something that is meant to be a means. By definition, it is self-centered and therefore suffers from a basic introversion. It violates the example given us in Christ's teaching and life where ministry on behalf of others is central and primary. The church, according to Dan White's view, is a training center 
where the people of God are equipped for their respective areas of ministry and mission. Nurture indeed comes as a byproduct of being equipped and involved in ministry. My experience in Christian education is that a mission mentality in the church motivates people to training and produces astounding results in personal spiritual growth as well as church growth. The only time I've ever rented a car in my life proved to be a huge mess. When I left it off at the Philadelphia airport, it was Christmas time and I was traveling back to Maine where I was serving as a pastor by way of Boston with my wife Cornelia and our then only child and not quite two-year-old Susanna. The car rental company had messed up just about everything that they could. They didn't have the original paperwork. They had the number of days wrong. They had the insurance wrong. And it took about 15 minutes to get it all straightened out. Just about that time, they were also remodeling the Philadelphia airport. So we had already been delayed over 40 minutes in traffic snarls. The departure of our plane, as a result, was less than five minutes away. I sent Cornelia ahead with the baggage. Uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> because I had to carry two huge shopping bags of Christmas presents and my briefcase and a suitcase. I also had to coax Susanna along the way because I obviously could not carry her. Come on, Susanna, follow daddy. <laughs> Cornelia was at the end of the longest hallway I have ever seen. <laughs> she was waving her arms as she stood next to the fellow who took your tickets as you went on. The man was saying, why isn't he running? <laughs> the luggage was on the plane. No, Susanna, don't look out those big windows. <laughs> don't play with those pretty plants. Don't wave at the people. Come with Daddy. I finally had a choice. Drop the Christmas presents and run with Susanna and make the plane. Leave Susanna and make the plane. <laughs> or miss the plane. We had a lovely breakfast in Philadelphia. The reason I told you that story is to impress upon you the fact that we really do not have to make a choice in this matter. We do not have to choose either nurture or service as the church's number one priority. I would suggest to you that the dilemma shown in these various statements is a false dilemma, which is not found in the Word of God. And guess where I got that insight? 
It wasn't for many of these practical people. They're the ones who created the problem for me. I got the answer from a scholar. Herman Ritterboss directs our attention to what the Apostle Paul speaks of as the goal and the destiny of the church. The biblical word for the goal and destiny of the church, according to Ritterboss in the scriptures, is fullness. The church is destined to be filled with all the fullness of God. And guess what? The fullness of God is described both in terms of quality, the result of nurture, and quantity, the result of service. Paul, for example, talks about quantity-type fullness in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and following, where he describes how the fullness of the Gentiles the quantity of the elect from among the Gentiles will come into the church. But Paul also speaks in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13 of a quality kind of fullness, kind of fully packed. As you remember, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about how the gifts that Jesus Christ has given to his church result in the building up of the body of Christ. But what is the final result of that building up? What is the destiny of the church? What is the result of our ministry to one another? The result. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we see that we don't have to choose to emphasize either nurture or service. If we emphasize what Paul has emphasized, we realize that both nurture and service are equally important because both of them create the intensive and the extensive fullness of Christ's church. Okay, even though we realize now that nurture versus service is a false dilemma, it is nonetheless true in most of our circles that there is at present in most of our churches an imbalance between the two. We tend to find in our midst lots of nurture and very little service. We have worked a lot more with the breastplate and the shield to defend ourselves and to strengthen ourselves than we have with the shoes of the gospel of peace. Most of our programs in our churches are geared only to the absorption of knowledge. We sit in preaching services. We sit in Sunday school classes. Week after week, year after year, and we get more and more educated. But we do little 
or nothing with what we learn. I'm astounded to look at the behavior of people who have been members of the church for 30 years and to see what little change it has produced in their lives. You see, the things that we do are not related often enough to real life. We don't take the knowledge that we have and use it in serving others, including the people in our own families, including the people in our churches, including the people in the world around us. Furthermore, we have done very little to shatter the clergy-laity distinction falsely created many centuries ago. We have not really returned to the biblical truth of the priesthood of all believers which we rejoice that our Reformation forefathers tried to recover for us. They have only recovered it mostly in name. We still think of the pastor and any other members of the paid church staff as the people that we have hired to do the ministry for us. We say, well, I don't have the time, or I don't have the gifts, or I don't have the inclination to serve. And that is why we have called this person to do the work for us. The church, we think, exists primarily to serve its members. Another real evidence of this unbalanced situation is that only a small percentage of the members of our churches are actually using those wonderful gifts of the Spirit that God has given us for service in service. I uh, reproduced this cartoon out of a 1930s Presbyterian Guardian. Presbyterian Guardian, I think, was actually far superior in those days to uh, uh, the publications uh, that were put out in later years. It had a much diverse ministry to the church. They even had cartoons. <laughs> An elder's page, a children's page. Anyway, this cartoon is entitled Just Pals. And uh, the canoe there, as you can see at the very front of it, is the church. And that canoe is filled with the burden of the work. And we have well-fed, well-nurtured, selfish Christian in the front, gazing ahead with the plans in hand to see what's going to happen next. While in the back we have worn-out, earnest Christian trying to do all of the work himself. Things haven't changed very much in 50 years, have they? How many of us cry, Why doesn't the church do this? Why doesn't the church help so-and-so without stopping to realize that we, all of us, are the church? The Bible does not say the faith was once for all delivered to the ministers. 
Rather, it says that the faith was delivered to the saints, to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You see, we do our service, we do our mission work like the United States carries out its space program. How did the United States, uh, the United States first start exploring outer space? Well, first of all, we only sent spaceships. And then we got a little more bold and we sent mice. And then we sent monkeys. And finally we sent men. But not very many men. Just a few men. Men who are specially trained and who wore special suits. I won't draw all the uh, application out of that. Missions, in other words, being sent by God in service to the spiritual and physical needs of others is not a job for substitutes. God himself showed that. He did not send robots or anybody else to come take his place when the work of service to sinful mankind was at stake. He came himself, personally, in the form of God the Son. Each of us is called to be engaged in service. As James Smart has said, the missionary situation of the church in the 20th century calls for a church in which each member, as they come up against the unbelieving world, will be able to bear effective witness to his faith, both in word and action. It requires Christian congregations in our communities that know they have a battle on their hands and are equipped to move into the community and find opportunities for bringing the Christian gospel to bear upon the paralyzing unbelief of men and women. In humiliation, we must confess that we are not ready for the missionary situation that is upon us. The word mission presently denotes an activity sponsored by us in non-Christian lands or in distant parts of our lands, or in underprivileged sections of our city, not the occupation of ordinary church members. Our churches have missions, but they are not themselves missions. The real problem is to get people in our churches to think of the church as a mission and of themselves as missionaries. By what authority is Jesus' definition of the church ignored? Jesus did not invite men to be good characters and supporters of a religious institution, but rather to embark with him on a mission for the redemption of the world. Those who shrank from wholehearted participation in his mission he turned away, even though they were enthusiastic about his teaching and admirers of his person. Every believer had a ministry, a priesthood, to discharge in relation to his fellow men, and therein lay the evangelizing power of the early church, which made it able to conquer an empire. Every member with a ministry. You know, James Smart isn't the only person that said that. Paul said it too. Ephesians 4.16 the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. It succeeds in maturing as each part does its work. 
But the sad fact is that many parts are not doing their work. We are not service-oriented. We are imbalanced. We would just rather sit and soak. So what are some possible remedies for the problem? What are some possible remedies for the problem? And uh, here I'm just going to lay out a bunch of ideas. I'm not saying that any of them is the idea which should be used in the service of your church simply because uh, I don't have the authority to do that. Nobody has the authority to do that. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ has left those details to ourselves. We are to work out the principles that he has set before us. But what are some possible remedies for this problem of an unbalanced situation? Well, to begin with, it seems to me that we as churches and as elders in our churches need to make service as important a priority as nurture in the work of the church. We need to take time asking ourselves, what are we doing in our churches in the way of service? Not just what we usually do, worry about uh, who's going to teach Sunday school the next quarter, not just worrying about whether the children are getting catechized properly, but also spending time with whether or not the church is acting as a servant to its members and to the world. As I said yesterday, are we spending time assessing the felt needs of our community? Are we meeting together as congregations and giving our input into what we feel are the felt needs of our community? Are we sharing what we feel are the needs of ourselves? And what are we doing in terms of spending time to meet those needs? What portion of our budget goes to growing Christians? And what portion of our budget goes to going into the world? Are all of our Sunday school classes designed only for mature Christians? (coughs) Is our structure set up only for nurture? Now, it will obviously take education to overcome these tendencies, which I spoke about just a few minutes ago, this imbalance which has been going on for centuries. It will take a lot of work in our congregations. But it can be done, and of course we know that it begins with setting before the people of God the words of God. We can say, well, we are all sons of Abraham by our faith in Jesus Christ. And why is it that God blessed Abraham, according to Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses? I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Churches can maybe spend a little less time meeting as missionary societies and spend more time talking about what they can do in mission, in serving, in actually doing the work that Christ came to do. The second thing that you can do uh, is to 
write a job description for your pastor that expects him to do uh, at least as much equipping as he does working. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is the purpose of a pastor. 4, 11, and 12. Christ gave some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. You see, pastors are there not to do the work, but to equip the people of God to do the work. We are supposed to be training experts, leadership development experts. We are supposed to help people, uh, we are supposed to know how to be able to help people to discover their spiritual gifts and then show them how they can use them in service. We must begin that work, of course, of equipping God's people for works of service by, first of all, reminding them again of the biblical teaching that God has called everyone in the church to serve him. We can set before them the wonderful reality that serving Jesus Christ and being used by God in accomplishing his purposes in this world, taking part in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ is an exciting privilege. It's not a burdensome duty. We can tell them that God has not only called us to take part in his work in this world, but he has also already given to them the gifts by which they can perform that service. That gets people excited to know that God thinks that much of them, that God wants to use them, and not just the guy up front who's had lots of education. Now, two tracks could perhaps come out of this foundation. In the first place, I have come to the conclusion that the pastor should be expected to invest a sizable amount of his time discipling a small group of people in the church who have the discipline and the desire to be used of the Lord. There are many people in our churches who not only want to serve the Lord, they're saying, here am I, Lord, but who are actually also willing to work. All that they need is to have the leaders of the church channel their energies and their abilities into service. Now, I've made the mistake in my ministry that many others have of saying, well, aren't we blessed to have so many gifted people? Aren't we blessed to have such rich, good soil? But then after we praise God for having all of that good soil with such potential for usefulness in the kingdom, we say, well, develop. And then we turn to the other people, we turn to the hard and stony soil, and we spend most of our time with the people who don't want to serve God, or who serve God for the wrong reasons. 
We invest most of our time in those problem people. The Lord says, don't neglect the problem people. You have a ministry to them. You have to give them the desire to love the Lord. And the people that are undisciplined, you need to get in there and stand by their side and show them by your own example how to do the work. But most importantly, don't neglect the good soil. Cultivate it. Fertilize it. Give it special care and attention. And you will then bring forth 30, 60 fold worth of fruit. You will do far more by investing time in those people and directing them into areas of service than you can do as a single person. Statistics show that a church in which the pastor is really the only significant worker, that congregation cannot grow beyond 140, 150 members. A second track, which comes out of this need to equip people, is to do a survey of your community. As I was suggesting yesterday, first of all, uh, we need to find out what our community feels are their deepest needs. Good ways of doing that are to go to the school superintendent. What does he feel are the big problems? The police chief. The, the, uh, uh, every single radio and television station in the United States is required by the FCC to have on hand in their files for public viewing and it needs to be renewed every single year, their estimation of the needs of their community. So somebody's already done a lot of the work for you. We need to survey our community. We need to find out what kind of religions we're dealing with, what kind of social problems we're dealing with, what kind of economic problems uh, our church uh, is being called upon to, do, uh, to, to meet in works of service. And then after we find out the needs of our community, then we set up our Christian education program. Now, of course, we don't want to neglect growth in terms of our knowledge of God himself and uh, of his word. We do need to have general Bible courses. We need to have good theology courses and understanding the, the whole message of Scripture. We need to have a grasp for biblical theology. But at the same time, we need to have uh, nurture. We need to have classes which are geared to equipping people for ministry. To, to help people to see ways in which they can witness to Roman Catholics that they're surrounded by in their neighborhoods. Uh, ways in which they can help all of those uh, uh, marriages that are falling apart around them. Well, what counsel can I give? Or a class on single people. Uh, I didn't say a class composed of single people. A class on single people. What are the needs of single people? And how can we minister to them more effectively? A class on ministry to the elderly. Prison ministry. A class on parent-teenager relationships, etc., etc. You see, our equipping programs should more reflect the needs of our congregation and our community. Now, obviously, this is going to take time. 
from the pastor's work. But again, you have told him, and God has told him, that he's an equipper, right? So you should expect him to equip and not to do your work for you. How else uh, can we bring this nurture-service imbalance back into balance? Well, I think uh, we can give more responsibility and more freedom to non-ordained members as soon as possible and wherever possible. Now, obviously, there are some prerogatives and responsibilities that, that only rest with the ordained members of the church. But one of the things that we found out at Bayview Church is that you don't have to have an ordained man to lock the door. (laughs) And you don't need an elder to count the offering. Remember what I said yesterday. Of the two ingredients for effective incorporation of new converts into the life of a church, The first one is to establish a broad base of relationships, remember the friends, but the other one is to give that new convert responsibility, give them a job to do. One of the things that we've just started this year is to set up committees, task committees, in each area of the life of the church with an elder at the head of each committee. You see, this is helping us as elders to address the wide range of concerns that the form of government tells us that we're responsible for, but we don't always have the time to think completely through. We are using the knowledge and the experience and the gifts that God has given our congregation in each of these areas. We're digesting their input and their recommendations. And then with that help, we're making decisions in leading the church. Not doing the work, leading the church. Another possible remedy for nurture overload is to insist on small group fellowships in our church. Now, I wasn't here a couple years ago, but I kind of got the drift that that, uh, uh, at least one of the speakers emphasized that throughout history, Uh, The church has always had two basic structures. You have the the church big, and then the church is little, in the midst of the big church. And uh, traditionally, our little churches uh, can be things like Sunday school class. That's a little church. Or a youth group. Or a choir. You see, they're all little churches where there is personal interaction and ministry going on. But one of the things we've also come to realize is that uh, it's very good to have small discipleship groups meeting regularly uh, for, for personal ministry. But you see, one of the things uh, that we have made the mistake of, at least in our own nurture groups, is that, um, is that we have not gone beyond the accountability which makes discipleship groups good. You see, one of the reasons why we should have discipleship groups, or faith families as we call them, is that it forces us to do something with the word that we're hearing. You know, if you talk about 
what the Word of God says, and you sit down as a group, and you discuss about how you are going to try to apply it that week, and you come back next week, and they say, well, how did it go? Sooner or later, you're going to have to change. You see, that's the advantage of the small group, the accountability. You're not too accountable directly for those uh, 104 sermons you've heard for the past year, except to maybe have more knowledge. One of the uh, problems of our small groups, though, as I see it, is that we exist often only for nurture. Uh, Bible story and sharing that is aimed only at personal spiritual growth. You see, we as uh, faith families, our small groups must develop individual strategies for um, involving the members of those groups in mission of some kind, whether it's a physical or spiritual mission. We, we saw that we had to do that, uh, and, and so we, uh, at Thanksgiving time, everybody else went at Christmas time, at Thanksgiving time, uh, we went to the nursing home and, and ministered to the people and sang Christmas carols at Thanksgiving time. You see, we as groups need to be involved in more than ourselves. We need to be involved in mission. Now, one church has actually structured their groups around the task that needs to be done, the service that needs to be done. You see, the people in the group are not only committed to each other, but they are committed to a common ministry, a specific mission. And the group exists for that mission. For example, you may have a music fellowship. So you have your prayer and Bible study together, you talk about each other's lives, you pray together, but then you do the music planning together. Or you have a missions fellowship, where after your personal ministry you, you read the letters and then decide how you're going to lead the church in the work of missions. An evangelistic visitation fellowship, an elders fellowship, a Laotian ministry fellowship. You see, you can either put the emphasis on nurture with mission or put the emphasis on mission with nurture. Another way, uh, and we're getting near the end, another way in which the church can promote service is simply to know the resources that it has available. Several months back, we gave out questionnaires to the members of our congregation in which we had lots of boxes uh, where you could check things off. And in that, we wanted to find out the abilities that the people in our church have and what services they would be willing to perform. Would you be willing to drive someone to church, give transportation, uh, etc., etc.? And finally, one, one good way, I think, and I haven't implemented this yet, but I think it's an excellent thing to consider, is uh, to utilize the resources that the people in our congregations have by setting up crisis teams or transition teams. And let me explain what, what I mean by that. Uh, a lot of people are going through crises, such as the loss of a loved one, or, uh, or they're going through uh, uh, the pains of divorce, or uh, people are, are going through uh, 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 the need to relate to their teenagers properly and to know exactly how to do it. Or, um, or they're going through uh, the loss of, uh, of, of their last child from the home, and now the parents are going to be just the two of them, 
Pop have more to say about your service tomorrow. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have served us with joy. We thank you that in Jesus Christ you have given yourself for us. Father, teach us the ways in which we can and we must give ourselves in service to others. 